So hello, my name is Adelaide and I'm Polish-Italian, currently a PhD student in education, but more political science. And I, I joined EYP in 2014 and I was for a couple years, I was on the board of EYP Poland. I was the president of EYP Poland 2019-2020. And I also been in the audit committee in EYP Poland. In EYP, I focused more on at the beginning, I started with media teams, and then I started focusing on chairing and academic output. I I thought that like I did my so I thought that like I'm for my masters I decided to do education, and I felt like because at the beginning my idea was. Because my PhD is more like education in the Faculty of Education, but it's more political science. And and I w I'm just joking that I tried to ex escape political science and that's where I am because I went to, ed to study education because I was like, yeah, I want to do practical things. I want to do social policy. And then like I end up like, and I was like, I don't want to do political theory. It's like so unpractical. And now what I'm doing, political theory. So like, <laughs> it's really, yeah, yeah, that's what you end up doing. Yeah. That's funny because w whenever I explain like my career route to people, I always say that I start started in politics and then I did everything to avoid politics and I've realized that education's my path so like training was like the ultimate thing for me in which I could go into something with the least amount of politics as possible but still the most amount of shit that I, I actually enjoy mm. but I feel like everyone's doing education like in my like environment like before that it was it was like IR and pol politics and stuff like that and now Everyone, every, even the people that are doing STEM, like they're doing some sort of educational project. You mentioned earlier on, okay, about like PhD in education stuff. So when I first got more involved in like the policy making think tank kind of stuff, I started to really specialize in education policy. And I really, really, really loved everything around education policy. And for me, I think one of the things that I, what, one of the things that I heard that really started to open my eyes and then drove a lot of my research in that field was when, when I kind of read somewhere, it was saying like higher education is never free. It's about who should pay. Cause there is no idea of like free higher education. Let's say you go to France and they say universities are free. Universities aren't free. Um, it's just passed to the taxpayers, for example. And if we then see let's say, who actually goes to university, well, less than 50% of the population goes to university. Which which part of the, let's say, socioeconomic part of society actually goes to university? Normally those who are kind of better off. So then in a, in a space in which university is free, when it's fully subsidized by taxpayers, it tends to be people who leave like high school straight away and start working, their taxes go towards paying for the people who are pretty well off <laughs> from well off families who then go into higher university higher education and so kind of starting to look at like education funding from a different lens that like really really opened my eyes and i started to really dive uh within like higher education funding is that kind of like a similar space where you're in or like when you're talking about like education and policy what, what does that look like well obviously it depends because you can look at state like mandatory education you can look at elementary school you can look at high schools you can look at higher education and uh, the education education faculties tend to be very very interdisciplinary so there's actually a lot of people in the education faculty that don't do much about education like they just are somewhat related and it's like a very very big concept i mean it's very open it's very loose i i actually look at civil society and 
how they influence education policy or they are trying to influence education policy. But I'm looking more at like political representation slash yeah, like political yeah, political representation and ideas that are being pushed and power. So for example, when you say also when you say higher education is never free, this is not just a funding issue, but it's also a like whatever it's taught and knowledge issue. Academia now, it's like there's a big trend to rely on postmodern theories Mm -hmm. and they are very related to left uh, social Marxism theories. And so so basically they are also very much against state control and private control and stuff like that. And obviously they are very critical of capitalism, but at the same time, their jobs rely on that. So it's it's really tricky to kind of navigate <laughs> that space and at the same time cambridge is also like very like cambridge uh, and oxford as like the cul- the university culture it's very still like there rem- there is a big reminiscence of like class structure and like the the kind of traditions and and also which is like you can see that the administration of the universities and the colleges is very like profit oriented and and like very much kind of we need to earn money and but then we need to like secure stuff for our students and whatever we can you know stuff like that and whereas at the same time like the stuff academic stuff of the colleges and and universities are very much like capitalism is bad we have to like eradicate it and stuff like that and 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 you see like the king's college king's college cambridge which has the big chapel which is like i think this is the biggest university chapel in europe or something like that and they make so they they make people pay like nine pounds just to see the chapel and and they like and this is like the most like left wing college and they even <laughs> had like a Soviet Union flag in their bar so like obviously the Eastern European <laughs> kids were like what is why are we coming to this college and like they have a Soviet Union flag in the college so now they changed it to um, LGBTQ flag but anyway so like they we they had this flag and 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 you know, and then they don't have like in Cambridge, we have this formal dinners, which are your support, like it's a three course meal. And like they, the staff of the college serves you the meal. So as if you were in a restaurant and you have to dress a bit nicer and like you wear a gown and like they are, you know, so like inclusive. And so like they don't wear gowns, like they're formal dinners. You can dress casual, you know, but then like they're the only college that has called like a visitor center and shop with souvenirs so it's 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 a bit like you know like you have marks and like you have to pay three pounds to enter to uh, marks is, is buried in somewhere near Hampstead, i think and and you have to pay three pounds to enter to see his grave so it's it's, it's that kind of logic <laughs> beautiful beautiful and, and and then um so during the formals but did, did they still do the because i remember i went to see a friend up there and they they would like say grace in latin yeah, yeah. So that's one thing as well. Um, yeah. Joel's face right now. <laughs> yeah, imagine. So you, you go to this fall and then you wear like massive gown. I remember me and a friend, we were just like running around kind of like Batman kind of stuff like that with the gown coming behind. And then, yeah, you sit down in these like very long Harry Potter style halls. And then you have the uh, normally old white men who then come to the front and they start talking saying grace in latin and then everyone can then start to eat yeah or like students sometimes say grace and then they get a free formal which is not bad <laughs> but then it's funny when you're like prayer, prayer like per christum dominum <laughs> yeah it's like it's so funny because like obviously nobody reads latin so like people just read it and it's just yeah it just sounds like unnatural you know what i mean but i think yeah i mean i 
I think like it's nice to have traditions because I think people need to like have you know some sort of like we we do have like you we need to like have this reverence for like you know people that have experience and like you know that have experienced different things and we need to take them seriously and like you know traditions are important as well because they teach us like respect for you know when we're gonna be old we don't want people to treat us badly so we also need to kind of like teach respect towards older people right but then at the same time I feel like it's it's a very much like you need a bit you need to be a bit more like clear about it because on one hand you you say you know you teach people to kind of be critical about the past and tradition but then at the same time you're you're kind of you have these traditions and so like I think people get confused and it's just like very it it, it just comes up across as like quite hypocritical and and yeah so that's kind of like and it's also something that everyone knows but then nobody does anything about it just because we don't really have we we can't really do much about it so and i feel like they do a lot of things that you know they will they will like just do them to kind of keep us happy to kind of show that they're doing something about it but it's not really you know it's not enough that's true it's, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of links between like this and the uip where for example like we do an uip session and we say you know we are inclusive we welcome everyone look at all these different people from all these different cultures we are one big open community remember to bring your suit your tie your good shoes because we're going to have ga in a really fancy venue oh for opening ceremony no 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 you're not dressing like that make sure you come nicely oh that's really great that you wrote down that idea in committee work yeah but can we phrase it in formal english do we have a native in the room can somebody put it in some fancy language for it to be a bit nicer so all the other committees cannot understand it together you know <laughs> we kind of do this a lot anyway v. yeah that's true I, I i remember that's actually i mean you probably guys have so many of those experiences and probably i had these conversations with you as well when we everyone complains about like what's it called resolution typing that like people just take eight hours to write to mm -hmm. do resolution typing for like literally no reason which like the only the only thing you have to do is to kind of make sure that it's clear and understandable and like the message you know was whereas like i've seen people changing the sense of the clause which so why are we even doing committee work if you're changing the sense of the clause because you assume <laughs> that you know it's stupid so you know what i mean like don't just write the resolution yourself you know what i mean like so it's yeah, yeah. that's true and i think that probably shows that it's not just yeah i think it's 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 probably something that learned from you know the system that we are part of like that is it's a replication of you know it, we we see it in different environments but it's probably a replication of systems that work in in different environments and i think that shows that we are not really ready for inclusion and maybe we should be a bit more careful to talk about it uh, yeah, how we speak mate. about it and what do we say and also that's that's kind of my 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 issue that like you know I, I don't like when they say, yeah, we are a world-leading university, but then, <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be a world-leading university? Does it mean that you're imposing your idea of world-leading and then you're, whereas, you know, you can't say you're world-leading if, if, if you have just one, one way of doing things or um or you have you're like di internally divided basically but yeah in oxbridge is really hard because you have so it's a different so it's not just one university it's the university and the colleges which is hard to kind of explain but my friend explained it that is as if you had like different membership clubs and like your each college is a membership club and if you're part of the membership club then one of the perks you get is the fact that you're a member of the university as well and uh, and then it's the only way you can access that but then you have different 
privileges depending on the membership club you're in and you don't really always get a choice because so that's that's kind of you know that's in that's interesting and it's nice to have the diversity because each college has its own traditions and like you know it's it's good that like we have those different things but then like it 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 becomes difficult when you think about issues of funding and access and and things like that and um and colleges like to be very exclusive as well especially those that have the most money <laughs> and you know i've heard things like for example one college even though they have rooms and they usually their rooms are cheap because they are more they're richer so their rooms are cheaper for students and other colleges are less rich and so the their rents are higher and like oh. even these richer colleges, even though they have rooms, they don't want to rent it out to students from other colleges just because, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, at least they could say, you know, what is their reasoning. So, but they never do. So, so then John, like when you, when you hear about this, cause I guess in, in my mind, whenever I think about Finland, I always kind of take Finland as like the example of a space in which it moves towards more of social equality, less about classism and stuff like this. But then again, in my mind, at the same time, when I think about France, I think about a similar thing where there's a paradox between they try to aim towards equality, but then at the same time, it's such a classist system. And even in like the higher education, it is so, so classist where you have the free universities. But then if you want a decent job, you then have to go to an, an école, which is then private and really expensive. Uh, or then you have to go to like prepa to then like prepare for this exam and they they're really expensive to go through so like how does that look like in finland yeah so in finland we don't have private universities per se like there's maybe like a handful of very specialized things like if you want to be a pilot then you might have to pay for your university but other than that it's it's free and i think one of the really cool things finland is doing to kind of enable anyone to go to university is to give a universal student support for anyone who wants to go to uni like if you if you're studying and you're proceeding in your studies more or less expected manner then you'll get i think it's around 250 to 300 euros a month and then you also have students housing support on top of that that you're automatically qualified for if you're if you're a uni student so it comes to like five or six hundred euros that everyone just automatically gets if they're proceeding with their studies. That's cool. That's cool. And I, I, what what I would really love to see one day, and I think Joel, like we've spoken about this like a bit privately as well, is um. So in in the UK, I think it was like twenty ten that they passed this. It could have been around that time, or no, probably maybe a little bit before when when the lib when the Liberal Democrats were had like the coalition with the Tories in in the UK government the Liberal Democrats wanted to push a graduate tax. And the idea was to focus on funding higher education from the people who aren't out of higher education. So let's say at the moment, I think Ireland is the only country in the EU in which more than 50% of its population go to higher education. Apart from Ireland, every other country, the majority do not go to higher education. Majority of our circles, our friends, probably go higher education. We don't get to see the other side, but the majority of the people in every other country apart from Ireland in the EU <laughs> do not actually go to university. So those majority who don't, don't go to university shouldn't really be subsidizing university for those who do, because 
also when you look at the class difference between those who go to university and those who don't there is a big difference if you look at earning potential afterwards of those who do and those who don't it's kind of weird when you have people who don't go to university who didn't have that opportunity to subsidize the others so their idea of what they wanted to push through was a graduate tax was to say that if you went to university then you would pay an extra tax of what you earn above a, th a threshold and the threshold would be the median wage. So whatever you earn above the median wage, we then tax you an extra X percent. And that X percent above the median wage gets taxed and that goes to help fund higher education. And in this case, if you pair that with what Joel was talking about there, about actually helping with further grants and, you know, universal grants out to really help anyone in higher education, what you could do is you say it's almost a promise to everyone to say, go into higher education. If, if there's no cost on entry, if you go in and you don't benefit from it, so let's say you get, you earn afterwards beneath the median wage, then it's free. Taxpayers fully pay for it. But if you go into there and then you actually earn a lot, then we're going to tax you a little bit of what you earn above the median wage. We're going to take that out. And that actually goes back towards helping support, pay for grants, pay for housing support and everything for other people to go into higher education. And that way you don't have the, the majority of like non-university people actually supporting and subsidizing the rich. And instead, it's just a promise to say either you make it or you're not going to pay for it. I do think there's a, I mean, there's a lot of interesting concepts around that and how that could work. But I do think there's also a kind of a problematic value judgment to say that if you don't earn above the median wage after doing a higher education, it's free. Because you could have spent those three years earning or five years, however many you spent at your university. It's, it's a weird thing to say that, okay, it's, it's free, but you still... Like if you're still not gonna earn <laughs> in more than you would have otherwise. I, I guess it's more kind of creating some kind of guarantee there of saying, you know, if all the data out there says that going to higher education helps increase your earning potential, maybe for some people it doesn't, and for those people who doesn't, it doesn't. Then it's saying, well, for the people it doesn't, why don't we all come together and allow the taxpayer to foot the bill for that, and that's okay, but for the people who let's say okay the majority of EYPs coming from like well-to-do families going into higher education and then having our higher education then subsidized by fully by the taxpayer sounds a little bit wrong so it's more trying to get like us lot to actually pay for our higher education while on the other hand the people who let's say try to go through it but it's not really for them or go into certain fields in which it's not actually really paid well after doing so so let's say if somebody goes into a nursing school and have to do so many years from that and then afterwards in that case it wouldn't be fair to like foot them the bill to kind of fund the full higher education i guess to me that really opens up the question of how is this kind of different taxation of different income levels distributed within the government spending there could be already a system in place in some member states that we're not just aware that a lot of the high tax percentage income to the, the state already goes to education instead of and then you could in a way argue that that, that then not using the less than median income earners taxes towards that purpose but i'm not very well read on this topic don't quote me on anything 
No, that, that, that is a really good point, which is saying, okay, if, if you have two societies, society A, society B, society A has a really, really progressive tax system. So they really, really tax like the rich probably uh, who do not have a bunch of loopholes and can just easily avoid this stuff. And then those who are less well off uh, are not taxed. Instead, they are really subsidized and they're helped in that kind of system. Having a free education system, well, fully paid by taxpayers makes sense and probably works well and is very progressive. But in most systems in which it's not as progressive as it could be, in which people still on a low wage still have to pay quite a lot of tax and people on higher wages still can find so many loopholes to kind of get out of so much of this uh, at the same time and probably still don't have to pay as much back in that kind of system i guess that's where this kind of graduate tax kind of comes in i guess one incentive this kind of system would also create is to further buffer the interest well one kind of incentive this this kind of system would create is to for people to go into these professions that don't require higher education but still pay pay really well because then you're just paying less tax because you didn't go to higher education but you're still I don't know a plumber or an electrician and that still kind of pay you really well. I mean, yeah, I think it depends on what are what are the priorities because I think one also needs to change the culture that has grown around higher education. I I would assume. Because I mean, I feel like yeah, this is this kind of what I'm. I'm I'm not writing about higher education. I'm actually writing more about the kind of clash because I'm looking at Poland and I'm looking at civil society that is anti-populist. Let's say yeah. So I'm looking more at like the power between the illiberal slash. I wouldn't call it liberal even turn because I feel like there is a bit of a. A crisis of liberal democracy and even politicians who say they are liberal democrats are not liberal democrats anymore so i'm kind of looking at these two uh forces and but i'm i'm i want to focus more on the pro-democrat pro slash sort of liberal democratic let's say pro, let's call it pro-democratic force and because i feel like this is a bit more under research because i think a lot of researchers have focused on the turn to populism and to analyze the populists, but not very much on on the turn to identity politics and 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 this um, this area, which has 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 left a lot of people un felt unrep- that they feel unrepresented, and a lot of these this way of thinking actually comes from what has been what what has been promoted in universities, right? And and the problem with that, which is obviously like you know. We in university we have time to think, and so you would assume you know we have like our our way of thinking and like our conclusions can be like more valid in that sense because we have time to think and we are thinking and we have time to gather data and we learned and you know we have experience and we have the equipment to do it. But at the same time, you know we can't ignore the fact that we are a bit, you know, as you said, Nathan, in the beginning, you know we we don't see the other side, like our environment, like our friends. You know, I I I told I said before that I feel like everyone's going to ed- like do educational things, but this is just my bubble. Like you know, I see people that I feel like everyone's doing education because like the people I talk to are have similar interests and like they are following a, cer- a certain trend that like it's you know it's relevant for my environment and also social media like you know suggests me things that I might be interested in. So then I start thinking, okay, this is what everyone's doing right now. And so like, but we are not like, we don't really know the other side. So we, how can we, you know, like, how can we make policies if we don't know like what 
everyone's struggling. And this is also, I feel like sometimes the issue of courses like PPE at Oxford that has produced so many prime ministers, but they all come from the same bubble. They all have the same way of thinking. My previous supervisor is actually doing uh, this research on like higher education and diplomacy and how like, you know, the fact that princes or heads of states go to universities, let's say in the UK or Fr France, I think it's trying to push uh, some sort of uh, like to bring in people from other countries uh, that will be influential in the future. And this is a way of spreading, you know, a certain way of thinking. And, you know, and then like you will have, you can end up having people who like, let's say, are going to be prime ministers of, I don't know, Zimbabwe or like an African country. Yeah, my, I'm not sure if Zimbabwe is a kingdom. I assume it's a, it's a republic. But then, for example, I'm not very good at that knowledge but like then you might end up you know having these people that went to these universities where like with a western point of view and like they will have friends you know from all over the world which theory it's supposed to be you know like diverse but then at the same time like because they all more or less have similar experiences it it doesn't become diverse and then you have them trying to rule their like you know they're trying they're coming back to their country and wanting to rule but this is a completely different context context so you can't really apply you know the same way of thinking to people that haven't experienced the same thing you did so and and that's why i meant like it's a bit tricky when you have you know pp when when you end up having then like a prime minister that you know proposes you know to gain to gain uh, votes he proposes that he will do a referendum to leave the EU and then like surprise surprise the UK leaves the EU you know what I mean yep. um so <laughs> so that's why that's why I, I you know these are like things that one needs to think about as well that you know you can't take this for granted and that's really interesting culture around higher education sh you know should change as well like and there are all these widening parties. I, I noticed that a lot in the UK that we pay, and actually the system that you were suggesting, it's a bit similar, I think, because we still get a loan, right? And we then have to repay and we repay only if we earn enough money, right? So, I mean, exactly. obviously, whatever we, as I say, we UK and before EU students would pay to the university was still not enough to sustain the university. And UCL says it openly that they are sustained by international student fees. But at the same time, uh, but it's a similar system that like we pay only if we earn enough money, right? But then, yeah, and they have this, but then at the same time, they have these like sections of widening participation. So they want to get as many people as possible to be in university. And, and then you have like, and, but then I've heard that, like, for example, they got, because I was working as a student ambassador, so I was working with the widening participation team at UCL, and they said that they got a raise from the government, like, they got more money assigned from the government to widening participation teams in universities, but they don't have anything, they don't know what to do with those money. And, and so it's like, and th this is, was like a, some sort of compromise from the government for raising fees because they raised fees from 9,000 to 9,250. Yeah. And then, but then they said, okay, but we're going to give more money to the widening participation team, which hasn't like, they don't know what to do with this money. They don't need this money. And then like, it's, it's a vicious cycle because you're raising the, you know, you don't have money for higher education because too many people are going to higher education. You have to fund it, fund it somehow. So then what do you do? Like you, you raise the fees because you don't have money, but then you give more money to widening participation teams that are supposed to bring more people to higher education and to pay those money again. And then again, you have the same problem. So what is the point? I don't know. But And, and there were people like that. I was, for example, when I was student ambassador, they would come like kids from high school and they would say like, but why should I go to university? You know, like, I just want to go into to work straight away. And for me, it was like, yeah, I don't really have a, you know, a reason for you to 
go to university. Like if you want to work, go to work. Like that's not a problem. And you know, my my brother did that. He went to work straight away, and then he started a part time degree. But he and he's like better off than most of my friends that finished a degree. You know what I mean? So I think it, it is it is a tricky one. And I don't think that my brother is not educated and and stupid or something like that. I think we just need to be fine with people working because it wasn't it wasn't an odd thing like 50 years ago. Um, I think now we just have too many options and people get confused. But then before, like, you know, people were still like, they were still smart, but then like they didn't go to university and they were still smart. So (laughs) maybe we need to think about that as well. Like, what does it mean vocational training and, and, you know, whether, you know, how can we, how can we enhance that? Because it's also, even though it is a bit tricky in the sense that like, it is like, you know, people will say, yeah, but this is because, you know, marketization of education, because we are looking at how education can serve the economy and stuff like that. But I think this is the reality we live in and we need to kind of understand that, you know, we, we also have to make choices that serve society because soon we'll be left without you know, plumbers or electricians and stuff like that. And and maybe people that would feel the vocation to do that otherwise, but then feel the pressure to go to higher education because of the society society pressure, yeah. they wouldn't do it. I wanted to grab onto something that you said there to also kind of bring this a bit more towards in the EYP context in terms of how representative is the EYP in a way leadership of the average session goer or the average European. I know we've talked about this from a welfare perspective in terms of that, okay, some people have a more of a suitable personality for, I don't know, partying all night and then using that to kind of network their way through the organization. But also from a, it would be interesting to see this from a kind of educational point of view and from a wider personality matrix of how do our NC presidents or session leadership actually compared to the average delegate in that NC or, or session. That's true. And then you can kind of go an extra layer. So on the one hand, you're you're going to be comparing, let's say, different leadership roles to understand to what extent do they actually represent the whole group of EYPers that actually come at the beginning? Because like you said, there could be a filtration process where only certain people actually make it to that leadership role. But then at the same time, you can kind of compare these two layers to the society that they live in. So let's say, I know when we were in Yerevan together, taking that session, taking the leadership of the session, and then taking the wider society around and to try to see to what extent is their representation and where those gaps really are. I mean, I guess like, you know, language is a main barrier in UIP. Although I guess now it might be changing. But I remember we did a session in Narva. And that was like the first Baltic Forum. And it was, yeah, we worked with, yeah, Narva is on the border between Estonia and Russia. And so like the majority of the kids there speak Russian. And, and so we were asked also to do the session to kind of like reinforce the European identity there, I guess. But then, yeah, obviously we had this issue of, of, of language and yeah. And the, the, that the kids, students, the, the young people, they, not all of them had very good English. Right. But at the same time, what I found, I remember one of my delegates that was struggling with, with the English, his strength, like what kind of took my heart, you know, I, like, I was so happy when I heard that because they were, they were having also a, a, like a scavenger hunt around the city or something like that. And I remember he was silent during committee work. I was trying to encourage him to speak, but 
yeah, obviously he was struggling with English, but I think he was a remarkable guy. Like he was just very, I think he was still quite confident. And that was like a real, that was a real gift to me because you obviously don't, don't get that as well. Often when, when you, it's very, you, it would be much harder for me to encourage him if, um, if he was shy and couldn't speak English, but he was still quite, seemed quite confident and open to learn and very curious and very happy to have people in his city and very, very proud of of his heritage as well. I think he was quite, you know, I think he, he seemed quite confident in, in his identity. And I think from a perspective that like we were there to kind of, because it was when there was annexation of Crimea. And, and I think that was kind of like a statement to show that, you know, show to Estonians that Russian speaking Estonians, that, you know, you're also European and, and, and stuff like that. And, but then like, I think he was still very kind of grounded in, in, in his, in his environment. And when it comes to comedy work, obviously it was hard to make him work in the team because he couldn't really speak English very well. So I was trying to encourage him, but it was sometimes hard because of the language barrier. But then when, but then his moment to shine was when the scavenger hunt happened. And I wasn't there because I think the chairs had something. I think it was resotyping res or something. And then, but my media team member was with them. Uh, with my t with my committee and I remember that he said that he was like this guy he was from Narva and he was kind of showing all the com he was showing the committee around the city and he was so proud that he could show the city to them and he was very happy and 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 he just enjoyed the session and I think that was what made the difference for him that moment in in the session and I was really really proud and I was really really happy because for me it was very, a big priority that he also kind of got something out of it and then during GA and then I think this was his time to bond with better with the committee as well and then during GA I remember that I did maybe something not necessarily correct but I kind of helped him to write a point just because I wanted him to speak <laughs> and and he was and I could see that he was very happy uh to have spoken even though he couldn't speak English very well but he was still like he had the bravery and the confidence to do it which I was really really grateful for and yeah and and that was a beautiful moment and and I feel like this makes I think because you know I study all these concepts and when you're when you're a PhD student you can't start especially in social science when you start thinking about like you know EYP and like all these you know and I'm studying also civil society as well so like you start and you start thinking about like ideas and stuff like that like what kind of ideas is EYP promoting that's also a question and how this you know creates power struggles you know like what kind of things we're putting in because and that comes back to the idea of inclusion that you mentioned Nathan that you know I feel like we are inclusive but you know if if you if you say this is right and this is wrong then we are inclusive yeah, you know I mean? exactly and it's, it's interesting that yeah the, the fact that you brought up language I, I for me for so many years I always thought you know language 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 is one of the biggest barriers but then I thought okay well let's have a look at the countries in which language isn't the barrier um, have a look at the UK and I was like oh so one second the uk is probably one of the most classist eyp <laughs> committees out there in which you probably have the highest frequency of the top over here they're calling them public schools but they're like it's like next level private schools um that 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 people go to and it's mainly them in is after is after is and they have one of the highest amount of like fees that they charge for 
for each of their sessions? Like, are, are, maybe things have changed. You know, yes, I'm, I'm shitting on another NC here, but um, maybe things have changed uh, since I kind of left. But I remember beforehand for like a one or two day regional, it was like a fee of like 50, 60 pounds or something like this. Like quite big fees for like very small events, etc. And then you go to other places and you can do like a four or five day forum with a very low participation fee. And many NCs managed to get rid of participation fees altogether to bring people. But even without, let's say you removed the fees, you removed the language and you're like, okay, let's say we have free sessions and then language isn't going to be a barrier. So let's say you, you take the UK as an example there's still like the cultural issue where EYP, from what I heard like back in the day, like especially in the UK was really represented as like a debating society and you go there as a debating society. So you have your smaller schools that don't want to go to these kind of things because they're just going to lose against the bigger, richer schools and they don't want to put their students in front of that stuff. So then they go to other things instead. So then they have the the self-selection bias that comes in. So even in the country where it's just literally everybody here is, well, the vast majority of people here are native. Even in this space here, we have like way, way, way worse kind of inclusion than, for example, in France, in which probably has one of the least amount of, uh, let's say, English speaking populations in Europe. Yeah, one thing I've also heard from some NCs, I'm not going to name any here, but some, <laughs> some NCs are kind of also financially incentivized to prioritize some schools. I guess you have yeah. partnerships with teachers or the administration and you can then use their venues, but they do expect some sort of priority in, in that sense. And it, it would be interesting to kind of have some sort of an overarching report of how do different NCs deal with inclusion? Like how, how big of a priority is that for different NCs? And if you take like, I also heard the craziest thing of about Azerbaijan is that they have so many delegates applying to the sessions. They just can't take anyone. They have like interviews and application processes for delegates. It's like, how do they then, is that also included in the selection criteria that they also have inclusion in mind when they're selecting those people? Yeah, these are, I think, very kind of tricky concepts because you have to balance funding and and yeah and like practical stuff and we obviously rely on volunteers and then you know what kind of you know organization you want to build and what kind of agendas you want to kind of promote because i kind of i i don't know i think we have to be very careful about it because and like try to recalibrate you know what is our priority because i feel like i mean i don't want to kind of um, (laughs) shout like put like very big bombs or out there but i feel like it is very easy to kind of fall into that like fall into um, some sort of temptation to want to set moral priorities as well and like set political agendas through organizations and and it's it's very hard to do it if we are we are dealing with young people as we are in UIP and and we have to remember that I mean, we remember, we try to remember that our project is an educational project. And I remember, and I think this, I mean, I'm going more into like political things here, but I remember that there was also like a discussion in UIP, are we apolitical or not? Because some people would say, yes, we are apolitical, but then some people would say we are not apolitical, we're just nonpartisan. Yeah. 
But I feel like it is very hard to say I'm nonpartisan when you're like, you know, promoting certain views. And this kind of aligns you with still like, you know, this, you get some sort of label then that even if you say you're nonpartisan, it suggests that you're a partisan yeah. in a specific It's more like way. we're, we're, so, we're non-affiliated yeah, so as opposed to yeah. being non-partisan. Yeah. And I think this what is something that can put people off as well. So I think it, it, it is about understanding what are the priorities of, you know, of EYP. And, and I think in our, in our case, it's also trickier because we have methodology and a, strat- a way of working that we use that it's, that it's trademarked in a way, right? So even if there were other organizations that would, let's say, promote different views, would want to use that, they wouldn't be able to use it. So that, in that sense, we're, this is also kind of limiting in that sense to, towards other people that they can't benefit from whatever we are offering us as an organization. Also bring up here one of the... One of my favorite things to complain about in EYP is that who should be the one to set those priorities for their organization? Is it the NCs? Is it the every? Is it all our participants? Is it the volunteers? Is it the IO? Is it the GB? Then I, I think it should be a common effort of all the volunteers that put time into the organization because we are an event-based organization. We can't define our priorities based on this kind of centralized bodies that so few people run for but then that becomes again a democratic problem of how do we then educate in enough of our volunteers on all these issues that we could take a cognizant decision as a group of people to set these priorities because if we release a questionnaire okay what should the priorities of EYP be it's going to be mostly just uninformed decisions and opinions instead of something that would actually necessarily put us in the in the best direction that we want to be yeah i don't think i don't think i'm saying that yeah obviously we can complain about these things but i think it's just these are things that i think one should be very careful like about you know we we should be wary about and thinking about it and that you know when we when we discuss things in our organization and as it is growing you know and and i feel like a lot of the times which is not a problem just i mean i wouldn't even call it problem because i mean these are like just things that you know it's very hard to navigate the space so like these are things that you have to think about and often there won't be like one solution that suits everyone these are just things that i think people have to consider and keep in the back of their heads when they think okay this is how things are done but maybe not take we shouldn't take some things for granted we shouldn't take everything that happens in our organization and everything that we say for granted because then it creates this kind of misunderstandings i think and these kind of like issues that can grow because people didn't establish these priorities from the beginning i i would assume yeah it's a very abstract thing to talk about but i i just feel like i just feel like this is the kind of a common trend right now in every institution not only civil society but private and, and governmental that a lot of things are taken for granted and a lot of concepts are taken for granted and we are and we need to learn to kind of Re- rethink those concepts or, or be a bit more honest about them well obviously sometimes being honest hurts the marketing right but but i think so at least you need to be like need to be sure that the people that enter your organization are, are aware that like this is what we do things for a reason and and you know like we will not suit everyone like will not be like inclusive in the radical sense of the world yeah the word then okay but 
And then like t tying a, a lot of this back to the conversation that, that you, that we had earlier about how you were saying, for example, the, uh, the beautiful paradoxes of, uh, of let's say going to see Marx's grave and having to pay three pounds to do so <laughs> and like the, these kind of things. And then let's say bringing that to something more concrete in UIP, if we think about participation fees. So the more we can charge in participation fees, the more sessions we're able to do because ex external funding is always limited and you can receive some external funding, but if you only relied on the external funding, then the number of sessions you can do and the amount of EYP you can bring out there for young people is going to be quite limited. And as we said, you're not independent as well as Joel pointed yeah. out. Yeah. And so, okay, so if, if, if that's one side of the coin, but then on the other side, the more you have participation fees, the more you, you're you not going to create an inclusive environment and you're going to be creating a barrier to entry for people. And if our idea in UIP is to bring this kind of like youth empowerment and be this education program for as many Europeans as possible, what is the role of participation fees? On the one hand, it can allow us to access more because we can run more sessions and make it more sustainable. But on the other hand, it's an exclusion device and it prevents a large segment from actually entering our events. So based on that, what do you guys think about participation fees? I think... I think no matter how we finance our events, there's going to be downsides. Like whether it's participation fees that push down inclusion or it's sponsorships from organizations that have agendas that are going to push things on our, on our events, whether it be from the academics or uh, other parts of how we arrange things. Like the way we fund EYP events really push the style of how those events turn out to be and what we tend to do in the organization in a more broad scale so i don't think there's a well, with the current but with the current income currents that eyp has i don't think there's a good solution to this because if we are funded by a bank we're not going to have a anti-capitalism topic because it's just not how sponsorship works yeah but i guess this is kind of then i think topics are again another like thing because then we have to think about you know what is more important for us are we do you as nathan said youth empowerment and we're just giving them the tools to like know how to think about things how to argument how to like work together or are we are we promoting some sort of viewpoint, you know, through our topics, right? So what is more important, the, the method or, 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 or the topic, right? And because I feel like for me, UIP has always been about the method, right? And I think this is in itself a bit more <laughs> inclusive when you, when you think about it. because you don't, you know, if you don't have strong topics on one side and on the other, then you, you know, like you, you can make sure that you have people from different perspectives and you just like including them in learning how to share you know how to be empowered and how to be more confident and brave and stuff like that but when it comes to fees i think like one the only thing that comes to my mind right now it's looking at online conf online sessions and whether they have made a difference whether they have had a similar because i would i would never i mean my first intuition would be that in person sessions are always more impactful than than online ones for obviously the contact you know the in person contact is more impactful but then you know that might be one one way of being a bit more inclusive you know trying to to be you know to do half 
in-person session and then half online sessions. And then even if online sessions are imperfect, they might still have some sort of impact. And But then we would need to ch check whether, you know, based on our experience from the pandemic in the network, we would need to kind of gather data on, on, on how this has impacted the people that participated in online sessions, which I think we could find positive yeah positive outcomes because i've i remembered i went i didn't really participate in online sessions during the pandemic but i i was um kind of i was at one because i was sharing my experience i think for ey people and and i remember one girl in my group she actually said that i think that was her second or third online session in eyp so she clearly enjoyed it if she came back so i feel like maybe we could that's something we could think about what, what are the other ways that allow us to be a bit more or less impactful maybe but still kind of spread the idea or spread the methods wide, more widely without with still being independent and being able to to kind of not rely on not be not having financial constraints i think it would be really interesting to have that data but i think get, gathering that in a meaningful way might be close to impossible because we don't we shouldn't just look at whether online events have had a positive impact we should look at whether online events have had a different impact than if we held those events physically would have like it's not a like yes but then the question is have we ever gathered data on impact in general in uip probably but is it quality enough that good enough quality that we could use it for this no i, I think it's a yeah. really so we can't really compare it to anything yeah. else which i think would in a way make the data less useful for us if we don't like have the reference frame of is it useful yes but there's an opportunity cost of putting our resources into those sessions instead no, i i like this way of thinking though because it it kind of it goes back to to what you were saying before about about having something in the back of your mind and this is something that eypers need to do is to when we walk into a space to understand what is the real goals of our organization what is the vision what where, where, where what are our values and to be very clear with this because just like we spoke there, if we take a clear example of session fees, should we have them? Should we not? Kind of as Joel pointed out, um, it's shit either way. But at the end of the day, we do need to pick our poison. And when we're picking out this poison, it's like maybe one of the poisons that we're picking is to say, yeah, let's do more online sessions and still do in-person sessions but if you're going to make that choice it's because of what you have in the back of your mind and if what we have in the back of our mind is saying that we are an educational organization and we this educate this organization is here to be able to reach as many people as possible and to be inclusive then we need to find solutions for that and then if we say okay actually holding some online sessions and holding the rest of them in person does this help us towards this aim potentially and those in-person sessions that's where we can charge the participation fee to then subsidize the ability to then hold these let's say online sessions etc so that way we get to reach out further to to more audiences etc and then maybe even through these participation fees kind of cutting a little bit off the top of each of them to be able to help fund outreach sessions and i can see joel's face is definitely agreeing with me <laughs> to do a, a, a visual yeah. commentary on joel's face i've never seen more lines screwed up towards <laughs> the middle in between somebody's nose and in between their eyes just, just holding up and the sunbird even got more <laughs> exactly. evident exactly and, and now bright red just the Completely. idea of having participation fees in our physical sessions so that we could use those participation fees to organize digital events for outreach purposes kind of, I don't know, 
I would argue that, the, and from what I've heard from other members of of EYP, is that our physical events are the shit, and comparing that to online is like a pale ghost. And then having that value judgment of okay, let's have participation fees so that we can have inclusion, but so we can have that inclusion mainly on less good events. It's a <laughs> let's do inclusion, but just send them to a forest somewhere in where they're not gonna have a good time. I I think what what I'm thinking about is that like you know often you you hear these like I you know these arguments that like if we managed money better we would find money for things, and I think that is you know, true in, in what way. But I think like maybe online events can be, you know, an encouragement for people to say, okay, you know, to, to actually want to come to a, a physical event because many people you would you would hear, okay, this is, uh, many people have actually the money or they can pen, put some money aside for something, but they need to see the value of doing that. And I think, and also like, I think we should just encourage people to, to kind of say if they, you know, if they are struggling financially for something, you know, that then we will try to help or we can give them kind of ways of finding money. For example, I, and this can be also learning, um, a learning outcome of UIP because my first session, actually, I fundraised money for, from my city and my uh, province to, to go, to be able to go and fund the, the participation fee. And I haven't even been to UIP <laughs> before. So I, and I could see the value in that. So I tried to make an effort to do it. And I think like, you know, if, if we kind of also, we can encourage people to, if they, if they see a value, they will, they will try to make it happen. Uh, and I think this is a one way that one, one of part of our vocation in UIP also empower people to do things. And this is one of the things that we can empower to do that, empower them to Joel is also. Yeah, no, I just, I just finding it amusing how anti-online digital sessions I'm, I am <laughs> clearly because I, I'm just thinking like, is then digital sessions the way, the best way to show people that value is, is it, is that worth the opportunity cost of? trying through trying to get that through other means uh so i just i just had a thought that like i i kind of about the keeping things back in your back in your head and 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 kind of necessities in uip and priorities that i feel like a lot of things and this is again a general comment to like the trends in society right now on discussing things and priorities is that a lot of sometimes we assume that something is not right and then like, you know, when it comes to inclusivity as well, like I don't want to make examples, but I've kind of noticed, especially in the EYP group on Facebook, that a lot of people make kind of suggestions based on assumptions on how other people feel about something, thinking that they are raising the voice for someone, but but then like, which might not be actually needed. And then this creates a lot of like discussions that go very kind of extreme sometimes. And and I feel like we, and then this, this creates division in our organization as well. And I feel, and, and kind of this, this sort of, some sort of aggression as well. And I feel like sometimes we should also be a bit mindful of that and try to, try to understand that we are not always, we don't always have to be there, the heroes to save someone, especially if we are not in the same situation, we should allow people to, to say for themselves. And maybe we shouldn't kind of assume that there are problems in our organization unless, you know, we actually heard it from someone that has this issue. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously, one has to be mindful about it, but I feel like these are things that kind of prevent us from being a bit more open and inclusive, and 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 sometimes even even politicize, over politicize our organization to to to, to kind of extents that extremes that are not necessary, and this takes away from the actual value of of what we can do and what because that's what I kind of 
you know, I remember when I joined UIP, I felt very, very included. And whereas, I mean, I don't know if I can open up to that, but I, I, I do kind of like, I have strong, some, some strong values that I felt I was always very much welcomed in UIP and, and everyone was very open about hearing about those values or like they were very you know, tolerant and, and they were very accommodating towards that. And that's why I, I wanted to stay in EYP. But I'm not sure, like, say, seeing, I mean, I haven't been in a session for a while, so I don't know how that would look in practice. But from the outside sometimes, or like in on the online level, and that might be like the so-called charm of social media, <laughs> that people, I feel like, you know, there is a bit more, less understanding and less, less openness and, 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 and this kind of thing. So maybe some people might not feel welcomed anymore. And so like, but I feel like because from the very kind of nature of our organization that we say we want to empower people. So to, to do things, I think we should also sometimes be like, okay, because I want to empower, empower this person to raise their voice, I will shut up and not raise their voice for them, but I will let them raise their voice and say how they actually feel literally in uip that is definitely something we're not very good at (laughs) because i I guess yeah in uip if we think about committee work if we think about almost like any kind of eyp social environment silence doesn't actually hold too long Uh, it's when we put lots of eyps together we're all so excited we all have so many ideas and opinions and if we want someone else to be heard or their opinions to be heard we're so eager to them to share that etc and I, I only kind of noticed that with like some other friend circles that I have, like w- w- one in particular that we, we, we used to have a call like once a week for about an hour, hour and a half. And we jump on a Zoom, we start having a bit of a chat and sometimes we'll have our two minute pause of silence. And that's totally fine. We just sit in the silence. And then suddenly somebody comes up and starts talking about something. And then we kind of join in that conversation and that's cool. But I was like, oh my God, <laughs> in UIP, we would just never have that. It's, it's just a very different culture of people being really excited about sharing things. And I can definitely relate to that. You, you haven't been to enough Nordic sessions, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I, I love this, Nathan. You, you summed up very well. The concept of silence, I think that's something that it's kind of, it's completely been eradicated in our culture nowadays, like in general. And it, it, it's something that, um, so I, I did try to introduce it a little bit um, in a few sessions. And I'm, I'm not, not sure if I did this. In, no, I don't think we did this in the other one. We may have, or, or maybe we've done in previous ones, in which like uh, buddy groups and stuff would not become group meetings but would be time sharing. And so the idea is that people are paired up and so people are in pairs and they go on a walk together and then you have 20 minutes. So you have five, 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 five. The first five minutes, person number one, let's say it's me and Joel, I am going to talk and Joel will only listen. He's not allowed to say anything. He just has to listen and he can nod. He can go, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. He can make like that, those kind of noises, but nothing else. He's not allowed to ask me anything. He's just there to listen to me as we walk. Then the next five minutes, Joel talks, not to reply to me, but just to talk, whatever's on his mind, whatever he feels like talking about. And then it comes to me by listening to him. It's actually helped me order so many of my thoughts as well. So then I get to talk for another five minutes. And then Joel gets to talk for another five minutes. And it puts us in one of these like special places in which we don't have a lot in EYP where we get total silence of the people around us and we're just allowed to verbalize. 
And then it puts us also in the other situation that doesn't happen very often, where you're not allowed to talk and you're only allowed to listen for an extended period of time. You want to comment so much. You just want to tell that person, it's okay. I support you in this, but you're not allowed to. You just have to listen. And it was a really, really, really cool thing. And I did it in quite a few sessions and it it kind of really, really helped. Because if you think about what a buddy group is really there for, it's about getting shit off of your chest after the end of the day. It's about really venting and kind of doing this. And so it created the space in which we could actually vent and it was more about being heard than having a conversation. I think I think one keyword that's important there if someone's gonna pick this up is active listening instead of just being there and phasing out for five minutes while the other person talks about something you're not really paying attention to. So if if you do introduce this concept to one of your teams, do look up active listening and introduce that into the topic as well because maybe that's a new thing we should introduce in uip as like for jury members as well because they usually look for teamwork and you know argumentation and maybe we should say active listening as well this is a radical idea but imagine if soon enough EYP will have to redefine its priorities from teaching people like educating people to raise their voices to educating people to shut up <laughs> <laughs>